You've got the plague. I got a fever. You've got the plague. Welcome to The Plague, the podcast where we look not just at the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, but at the societal plagues, the plagues created by human socioeconomic systems that make the coronavirus more virulent and dangerous. I'm your host, L.M. Bogad, broadcasting from my shelter-in-place bunker, and every episode we examine a different societal plague, a political or social pre-existing condition that, cross-indicated with the coronavirus, makes it deadlier than it could otherwise ever be. The coronavirus infects the human body, but what illnesses in our body politic make us more vulnerable? Economic inequality, environmental devastation, labor precarity? We pick a different social plague each week and talk with an expert about how that plague makes this pandemic worse and what we can do about it. George Floyd. Brianna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Kayla Moore, Sandra Bland, Tamir Rice, Eric Garner. We unequivocally condemn the racist murders of African Americans and other people of color by police in the United States. We acknowledge these are just a few of the names of the victims of racist violence in a list of millions of people in United States history. We acknowledge this plague is systemic and extends beyond the police. This is a society where people of color cannot walk, jog, drive, relax in a park, call for medical assistance, or even sleep in their own homes without fear of being murdered by the state. We denounce this racist, authoritarian violence and the hateful rhetoric that fuels it. Black Lives Matter Earlier this week, I was at a protest in Oakland in defiance of the curfew led by the Anti-Police Terror Project and other organizations of people of color, it was festive. Indigenous People for Black Lives performed and led chants. The speeches by the organizers were defiant and inspiring and incisive. And at one point, when it looked like the police might be moving in, some folks said, white people to the front and a barrier of white people, leveraging white privilege temporarily to make an obstacle, formed up. The police actually weren't coming, after all, in that particular moment, but it was noteworthy. The curfew was lifted the next day. And today I attended a march in Berkeley, a a funeral march to bury racism and police terror. A couple of bands were playing festively in the style of uh, New Orleans second-line funeral marches. So it was both gravely serious and defiantly upbeat, which is a powerful combination. We are now in the throes of the greatest sustained protest movement across the entire United States since 1968. In that year, social movements protested across the globe for an end to imperialism and exploitation, 
from Mexico City to Prague to Chicago. In Paris, May of 1968 saw a wave of strikes and student occupations that shut down the city. The slogans and graffiti in Paris during that uprising were different from the usual straightforward political demands. All power to the imagination. Beneath the streets, the beach. Be realistic. Demand the impossible. This movement was influenced by a group known as the Situationists, who embraced the radical imagination as an indispensable tool for fundamental change in times of crisis and revolution. We find ourselves now, in early June of 2020, at a turning point. The people are in motion. And the forces of repression are on the attack, committing violent acts every day against protesters and journalists. But cracks are forming in the armor of the elites. Dissent is spreading. When arch-conservatives like Pat Robertson and George Will and many military generals say the president has gone too far, that's a moment. Things are shifting. We will need a powerful and vibrant collective imagination to find our way to a better world in the days to come. Our guest today on The Plague, here to diagnose the plague of, quote, there is no alternative, unquote, and prescribing a utopian politics of the imagination, is Stephen Duncombe. Stephen Duncombe is professor of media and culture at New York University and author and editor of six books on the intersection of culture and politics. Duncombe, a lifelong political activist, co-founded a community-based advocacy group in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, which won an award for creative activism from the Abby Hoffman Foundation. And he's currently co-founder and research director of the Center for Artistic Activism, a research and training organization that helps activists create more like artists and artists strategize more like activists. Steve, we're so happy to have you here on The Plague. And um, I know that you had an interesting plague you wanted to diagnose for our body politic, uh, the plague of, quote, there is no alternative, unquote. Yes, Larry. First of all, um, I want to say thank you for having me on the plague, but that sounds really bizarre. Um, you know, should I say thank you for being part of the plague? Thank you for, you know, uh, contributing to the plague? Um, I can't yes. think of any way I would I would respond. So anyway, I am glad to be here, Larry. Um, and the plague I'd like to talk about today is uh, something called Tina. Um, and it's called There Is No Alternative. Um, mm -hmm. And there's many forms of this, but the one I'm thinking of is particularly the one that was articulated by Margie Thatcher, the conservative prime minister of Great Britain in the 1980s, in which any time... Someone suggested that we say have a better national health care system or that was a different way to organize things other than capitalism or that neoliberalism was not the be all and end all. Her stock response was, but there is no alternative. In other words, right. we had to constrain our hopes and desires, not because they were wrong. She would never go so far as to say they were wrong. They were actually quite wonderful. 
Right. Wonderful desires. It's so nice that you have these fantastic desires. But really, folks, there is no alternative to neoliberal capitalism. And mm. it's a very effective strategy of social control. It's like an ideological resigned shrug. Yes. Like, look, I, I really wish we didn't have to have austerity and ruthless market economies and deregulate everything and privatize everything. But we're just, you know what? We're in a bind, folks. Yeah. There's nothing else we can right. do. There is, there is no alternative. And that's where it came from Tina. So she became famous for this idea of that there is no alternative. Yes. Now, this was part of her ability. This is part of her campaign that enabled uh, the crushing of the coal miners, uh, the privatization of British Rail, which has been pretty disastrous overall. And, many, many things. And the rolling back of social democracy. I mean, it's, it's important mm -hmm. to remember that after World War II, Britain was very much like Denmark and France in terms of being a social democracy and moving towards social democracy. And she stopped it and reversed it um, and brought it in Britain into line with a, more of a U.S. politics um, and U.S. economics. Now, obviously not completely. Um, but as a strategy of social control, it's quite brilliant. Ideologies matter. And what people believe is possible matters as much as other elements in the world, like physics and chemistry. Ideology is in that mix, right, of what's going to happen in the human world, right? Um, so here we are, and other folks have adapted this idea of Tina, even if they don't literally use that phrase, the, but the idea of there is no alternative, the inevitability of the present, the inevitability of the power structure as it exists now. Um, how is that take like how is that taken form elsewhere? Part of the I like to think about the tyranny of the possible, um, and this idea of you know if politics is the art of the possible, um, I actually think that that which is Otto von Bismarck, the Iron Chancellor of Germany, once said that, that really that idea of the, the possibility really constrains what's probably the most important tool in our arsenal, which is to be able to dream the impossible. And the idea that we have to mm -hmm. stay reasonable and stay within possibility often means, as you just pointed out, that we have to stay in the present. Um, and the most powerful ideological tool in some ways is not to tell people that they're wrong, but to tell people that what they strive for is simply unnatural, impossible. And what we have now is what we was always had and what we will always have in the future because of the natural course of things. It is quite simply common sense. And we don't mean a common sense. It, that phrase is bandied about a lot. When Tom Paine said it, yeah. it was in a revolutionary well, context, questioning well, the status quo. But what you're talking about is it's common sense. These people don't get to vote. You know, let's go to the 1960s. That's just how it's always been. We're not going to let them vote. Uh, and then, of course, there becomes a new, better common sense <laughs> has to be established. Exactly. I'm glad you brought up Thomas Paine because that's exactly why he entitles this common sense is because he wants to create a new common sense. Yes. Um, and that really, and this is, you know, an insight of Antonio Gramsci, the Italian communist philosopher and, and activist, which is, is how people really control people um, is through political hegemony, economic hegemony, military hegemony, but also cultural hegemony. And the most powerful tool of cultural hegemony is common sense, mm -hmm. which is because then it's a politics that never speaks itself as politics. We just simply can't do it. It cannot be done. Right. We don't do things like that. Right. No, that's, we could never do something like that. 
No, that's just not how it's done. There is no alternative to the present. Right. And if you lack common sense, we all know that that is a very uh, delegitimizing thing for anyone in the public sphere. If I can establish that you, with your wild ideas of, I don't know, um, public funding of social welfare or regulation of labor practices, you know, things that maybe aren't done as much yet. Um, if I can just say, he's such a nice guy, but, you know, he doesn't have any common sense. That's very delegitimizing. Or right? worse, He's speaking yeah. nonsense. Right. Um, and, you know, this, yeah. this, this fellow that I think we both like, um, a French philosopher, Jacques Rancière, has this whole idea of, you know, politics of sensibility. Um, and the idea of that is that he says that essentially politics is based around what we think is sensible and what we think is nonsense. But because he's French, he loves playing with words, of course. And so when he thinks about sense, he's expanding that idea even further than Thomas Paine or even further than Antonio Gramsci and talking about literally what tastes bad, what smells bad, what doesn't sound like music or even doesn't sound like proper political speech. And I always think of the nonsense of women talking about the household and talking about the politics of the personal in 1968. And to a respectable male, you know, political scientist, this isn't politics. This is nonsense. This is insensible, right? But of course, they changed, this second wave feminism changed the common sense of political discourse. So even conservatives now think about politics within a personal bandwidth. Um, and so that, that war over sensibility in some ways is a very, very important war. And so but back to Tina, the plague is kind of making sense as only the present and therefore discounting any future senses, any future ways of understanding the world, any future ways of ordering the world. When rap music really started getting popular, you had folks saying, I think it, you had racist folks, I will say racist cultural commenters saying, I think it's interesting, but it's not music. And then they would have a whole discussion about why it doesn't qualify as music. Again, this is the common sense of what's music. And the same argument was made, was made about jazz, right? And of course, now you have jazz at Lincoln mm -hmm. Center. Oh, yeah. Um, and as things kind of, and the same thing was said about modernist art and visual arts. Um, mm -hmm. And even right. those people like the Surrealists who tried to think outside of the common sense, the problem with hegemonic sense is it also incorporates it brings stuff in. Uh -huh. And so what was once nonsensible and quite radical sooner or later becomes sensible if it can become packaged. That is, if you can stick surrealism in a museum and put it in an art history book, then it's fine. It's not Andre Breton questioning the fundamental reality of things, both politically as well as aesthetically. First, we'll deny you and delegitimize you and marginalize you when we can't do that anymore because you've just got game and persistence. OK, then we'll bring you into the halls of high culture and, exactly. and keep exactly. you in a box over there. But when, and, you know, I knew it all along. I knew <laughs> exactly. he was a genius all along. <laughs> you know. So so let me ask you something, Steve. Is Medicare for all the jazz of, you know, of its time? In other words, it's outside of what works as common sense for some people or sensibility. I mean, that is yes, legitimate. in this country, although um, one, it's very hard to sustain because Canada, Canada, 
Canada has, <laughs> a, you know, an equivalent of Medicare for all. And so it's, it's a very it's, it's fascinating that that has right. become sort of nonsense and has been able to maintain itself as nonsense since post 1940s when it was put forth as a possibility in the United States, because it's a very hard sense to, to maintain. But it. It, it happens, and, and, and it and has happened successfully. And what's interesting is I think it's under under attack. Is I think that one of the interesting things about the plague we're in right now, the coronavirus plague, is it becomes quite evident that our medical system cannot function as a social medical system. And things like plagues are social medical problems. Our medical system does very well. If you are an individual who has an individual problem and you have individual funds to pay for it. But when it's a collective problem, like a virus is, when viruses really, you know, unless you're David Geffen on a yacht someplace, you know, in the, I don't, God knows where he is, yeah. and he's moving yeah. around, I'm sure, um, that, right. you know, that a plague is a social problem and we don't have a social system. Interestingly enough, the national health system of Britain, which Margie Thatcher did everything she could to destroy by saying that there is no alternative, is having this amazing um, renaissance and is beloved in England and Scotland um, and Great Britain right now. What was unacceptable becomes acceptable when you give it a try and you realize that it actually works. And I wonder if this is why so many folks that are using this kind of authoritarian, quote, there is no alternative argument, are resentful of science and are resentful of peer review because peer review will prove them wrong. Uh, The advancement of actually testing ideas in a sincere way will often prove them wrong. And it's easier to just say, well, that's weird. That's That's outside the frame of reality. We don't want to even try it. Well, but that's interesting because that is what you're suggesting is actually bringing the reality principle back in. Which is to say, in some ways, that reality is on the side of impossible dreams sometimes. You know, if, yeah, and I think that's an interesting argument to make because I think a lot of artists particularly like to say, well, we're outside of science. You know, you think about the great movements of the avant-garde in the early 20th century and um, the constructivists, for example, or as I mentioned before, the surrealists or the Dadaists. Um, we're all about thinking outside of reality as a way to ba- break the stranglehold of there is no alternative of like World War One, um, or there is no alternative of bourgeois society. Um, and in a way, they consciously and self-consciously put themselves outside of reality. Like one of my favorite, um, the, the first commissar of culture in the Soviet Union, Anatoly, Anatoly, uh, what was his name? Lunacharsky. Once said about the constructivists, they play at being engineers. Is they come up with these incredible projects like Tatlin's uh-huh. Tower, but they, they don't. They aren't in reality. And there's yes. a there's a politics in that. But what you're suggesting right. is actually is reality might be on our side because those people who are playing with unreality more than us are actually the side of fascism mm-hmm. because they also are not afraid to dream the impossible. Yes. And there are many things that fascism has, quote unquote, accomplished that were unspeakable and unimaginable. And when they had power, they sure did it. And it was horrifying. Right. And I think we're at that moment right now in history. I think that that it's wrong to see Donald Trump as actually Margaret Thatcher. So I think that he's not about a politics of there is no alternative. I actually think that was Hillary Clinton. Um, and I think that what's radical about Donald Trump is that he has the utopian vision of a fascist. 
Um, and I think that what we need to do, um, and this may be a segue into where I think we're going to go next, Larry, is we need to reanimate the utopian vision of the left. When you have said we can't have socialized medicine uh, like every other wealthy country, uh, there is a rude awakening when it turns out, oh, there has to be an alternative because when a pandemic comes, we're not prepared. And it was those outside of common sense people who for several generations have been saying we need to have a socialized health system of some kind. There's many different ways to do it, but something. Mm -hmm. Well, turns out they've been proven right because we would have been more prepared for this. Um, and so I, I really appreciate you bringing that up and touching upon it. What we do, as, as you know, on the plague is we talk about the plague. Then we talk about why it's bad in general and why it's bad in this specific right. moment of pandemic, police curfews, the president's talking about marching troops in the street, etc. Um, he does have his own yeah. outside of the usual agenda as you say he is making his own reality and certainly making his own common sense if we can call it that um but one thing that i do think is interesting and you're making a good point here the dadaists uh yes deliberately made nonsense art that was anti-art that was shocking because people at the time had no frame of reference now we think about monty python as nonsensical but and they were fun yes. but they were influenced by the dadaists first who did outrageous things and um were offended you had people jumping on the stage and like shoving them off the stage because they couldn't handle someone just being nonsensical and random uh but it was a desire to break down this bourgeois mechanical society that caused world war one and the destruction so here we are where the Dadaists engage with a, the madness of the current reality in their time, the madness of the slaughter of World War I, we're in a moment now where yes. we're dealing with the madness of the king. We're dealing with a mad king and a pandemic that is the result of folks refusing an alternative when we had the chance 10 years ago if someone had realized, no, we have to do this. We would have had a better medical system, just for example. And that, bring, that brings us to the to the to what do we do now, right? Which is the what is to be done question, which is, it seems to me that there's, there's you, you've correctly identified the sort of the madness of the moment. And part of me wants to return to reality, which is, let's just listen to the scientists. Let's actually look at what Germany is doing. Let's look at what works and let's move in some ways, away from the nonsense of the, of the king and to the sense-making of the sense-makers. And I actually think in this moment of crisis, we probably should be doing that. But I want to look beyond this crisis and say, how can we reintroduce nonsense in a productive way, in not a way which is in support of 
reactionary politics in support of giving up on what we thought were common sense principles of human rights um, and racial equality and decency and care. And at the bottom line, common sense ideas of what it means to be a community. We're in a moment where perhaps we can push on the button of the nonsense coming out of the halls of power, the maniacal and reality divorced commentary from those in charge to give us license to respond with a loving and inventive, quote unquote, nonsense something that envisions a reality let we don't have a responsible person in charge right now to make us look more irresponsible there is the ultimate irresponsibility in power incarnate so now let's bring in some productive wild thinking as it were and uh can you give us some examples of what you're either some influences of yours that you really loved or work that you've done uh, as an activist as a trainer or just ancestors that you really respect who have been the masters at the impossible who i admire so much i mean there's so many but i'm going to go way back i'm going to go back 500 years or 500 in four years, to be exact, wow. um, uh, to 1516, 1515, 1516, um, to Thomas More's Utopia. Um, and probably most of the listeners there are familiar with Thomas More's Utopia. I think I read it in high school, or I think it was assigned in high school, and I probably didn't read it, um, particularly because um, it's rather boring. The, the utopia that Thomas More conjures up, it seems rather dull by our present standards. Um, but I went back and reread it about 10 years ago um, in preparation for giving a, a series of talks about the politics of imagination at, oddly enough, Moscow State University. Um, and I realized that I really had to come to grips with utopia because these were people in a failed utopia. Um, and so what, how can I talk about a politics of the imagination for people that were in a moment of an imaginary real that turned into a terrifying reality? Um, so I went back and read it, and it blew my mind. Um, so when you're thinking about Thomas More's utopia, most people are thinking about the island of utopia that is described in part two of Utopia. And that's the kind of boring part. It's groovy. It's cool, right? That is, is that there's no property and people can share houses and they've, uh, in certain circumstances, women have political power. Um, the mm -hmm. funniest part, of course, is that um, gold is used for chamber pots. Um, yes. And so when these ambassadors coming, trying to impress the Utopians wearing gold, everybody's like, they're wearing shitters around their necks. Um, so there's a lot, of, a lot of kind of fun stuff in that. Um, but yeah. what's really amazing about Utopia is kind of the structure of the whole thing. Because part one, um, in which Thomas More meets this mythic Raphael Hithliday who tells him the story about Utopia, and all this other stuff around Utopia, these poems that are written by Thomas More's friends. They create a utopian alphabet. They create utopian maps and so on and so forth. It's all this elaborate farce, um, which does an interesting thing. That More sketches out this 
by the standards of 1516, an impossible society, a society without lawyers, a society without political overlords, a society where crime is not punished um, by death, where there's property which is freely shared amongst all people, an impossible idea in 1516, also an impossible deal to, uh, ideal today. Um, mm -hmm. But then it goes about disassembling it. Um, and probably the, the best-known disassembly is the name Utopia itself. Um, mm -hmm. It's a made-up word by Thomas More that means no place in Greek. Utopias, right. um, no place. Um, and then the guy who tells Thomas More of this place is named Raphael Hithlidaeus in the um, Latin, in which it's written. Um, and Hithlidaeus means blower of wind or bullshitter. <laughs> And so you're basically told about a place that doesn't exist by a bullshitter. And um, yet what's great about this impossible place is it fires the imagination, right? Um, that is, is you can imagine what a world might be like, an impossible place. But instead of saying, and if you just sign with me, if you just march under my flag, we will get there, comrades. And if we don't get there, you're off to the gulag. Moore does something different. Yeah. He says, you can't get there with me because the world that I've created doesn't exist. Go imagine on your own. And so if you think about it like this, kind of utopia as this sort of gesture of artistic activism works this way. Okay. So it has a series of eight right. steps. People believe the world that they live in is the only world that's possible. In other words, there is no alternative. That's the Tina plague. Okay? Right. But then they read mm -hmm. Utopia. Sure. We present them with a different way of thinking, seeing, imagining, sensing. Um, and through the vivid description, in this case, Moore's Utopia, you can experience an alternative reality. Very much like when you go to a play, you imagine yourself right. in that space. And having experienced this alternative, this is the sort of third step. You question that your world is the only possibility. And you start to believe that there might be an alternative because I've felt it. I've seen it. And then, yeah. fourth step, that world seemed a lot better than mine. I'd like to go live there. Yeah. Right? That's how I feel every time I go to Denmark. Mm -hmm. Right? I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to live here somehow. Okay. I'm on board. <laughs> exactly. But here's the brilliance of, of uh, Moore, is he won't let me go to Denmark. Okay? He basically says, it's no place. Denmark doesn't exist. And if you look really clearly at Denmark, it actually can exist only because it excludes foreigners. Um, mm. And so therefore, and this is the sort of sixth move, you either have to go back to our world, the world that you live, and say, yeah, there is no alternative. But I know there's something better. And then that creates a world of bad faith, right? In which you know that there is something better, but you convince yourself that there is no alternative again and again and again. And then just wallow in despair. Or mm -hmm. you imagine a better world for yourself. Because you can't live in Thomas More's world. And then having imagined utopia, you go out and create it. And so what I realized about Thomas More's Utopia is it's really an imagination machine, right? It's and funny. I think for me, that's the solution to the plague. We have to create imagination machines. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the imagination machine has to have two qualities. One, it has to be all sensing. You have to create an alternative that people want to live in and feel that they are living in. And then at the same mm-hmm. time, you have to say, uh-uh, you can't come. You have to create it yourself. Because anytime someone says, yeah, you know, uh, I've got a utopia, it's over here, you should run. Because you're going to start wearing right. black sneakers, um, yeah. black Nikes. There might be some Kool-Aid, yeah. there might be some Kool-Aid involved, we don't exactly. know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do think that, that, that while you're right, that we need to, at this moment, to get out of the nonsense of the, the orange-haired orangutan king, um, that we need to go back to sensibility, we also need to hold on to creating a new sense. Um, and sometimes our role mm-hmm. as artists and as activists mm-hmm. is not to create a practical alternative. Like I'm down with the Green New Deal. I love its practicality. And it is, I am so right. happy that people are doing that. Yeah. Our job is to say, how can we take it further? What would be the impossible New Deal? Um, and then let the other people say, no, no, you can't do that. But we've right, now at this point right. expanded people's imaginations. Utopia is not a destination. It's a direction, as has been said. Right. So let's look towards that horizon. And as we do that and move towards it, the horizon continues to recede. That's what it is to live on a sphere. But we are moving forward. Right. We're moving in the better direction. And uh, even like when you know, Tolkien created, for those who don't even like Tolkien's books, one thing that he did do is create a very livable and breathable, imaginable world. And that's part of the appeal of the Tolkien fantasy world. Um, it's not progressive. It's fairly reactionary. But the point is, it he did along the lines of sub-creation, as he called it. I sub-create little worlds here. Um, you can imagine yourself there as well. So it's so interesting that the it's that level of I can feel it. I can imagine it. I can wander around in it, but only in my imagination. Hey, now you've titillated my imagination. What could we do here? Now I'm back on this mundane planet, this mundane neighborhood. How can I bring a little bit of that good magic uh, into this world? Well, I think this this is exactly what, you know, artistic activists like you and me do, right? Is we create moments where one can imagine a different world. So let, let me give you an example. Um, so about five or six years ago, um, we, and the, we, in this case was myself and, um, artist, Steve Lambert, um, from the center for artistic activist went to, um, uh, Macedonia in the Western Balkans to work with LGBTQ folks and Roma rights folks. Um, and Macedonia at that point was a terrible place to be queer, terrible place to be Roma. In fact, it was the second worst place after Russia and Europe, um, uh, in terms of repression. It was a right wing nationalist government. And we did our workshop for five days. And at the end of their workshop, we always within 24 hours plan and execute a intervention or a creative intervention. And we sat down and said, okay, what are we going to do? And the first thing that these folks wanted to do is they were like so sick of being beat up quite literally, um, spat upon, ridiculed, denigrated by the population. They wanted to say basically, fuck you, right? We're here, we're queer, get used to it. And we talked about that and we talked about that. Yeah, that was understandable to like kick back when you've been kicked. 
But we said, okay, but the problem in, the, in that, as we talked about it, we realized that the problem in that was that we weren't creating the world that we wanted to live in. We were actually reinforcing the shitty world that these people had created. They say, we're outsiders because we're queer, we're outsiders because we're Roma, and we're kind of confirming that. So let's rethink. And we rethought, we rethought, and what we came up with is to create the Macedonia that we all wanted. Only for three hours, on a Saturday afternoon in a park, we created something called the Future Republic of the Former Republic of Macedonia, which was a play on the formal name of Macedonia. The Greeks, mm -hmm. until recently, wouldn't allow Macedonia to call themselves Macedonia. Um, they still don't. It has to be Northern Macedonia. And so they were referred right. to as the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, which, of course, people in Macedonia hated. So, But we created the Future Republic of the Former Republic of Macedonia. And... Um, in a park, we created a border. Um, we created these beautiful signs. We had music. We had talk to a queer Macedonian, talk to your fellow Roma Macedonian. We had a border guard. And every time someone came through the border, we would applaud and blow whistles and cheer. And then we had people get up on a pedestal. Now, the right-wing nationalist government of Macedonia has spent all of this money creating these insane statues every place to nationalist heroes of Macedonia. So we were playing with that and we created a pedestal and everyday people would get up and hold up a sign and they would say everyday hero or heroine and they'd write their names or something into it. And we just created this beautiful space. Mm, At the end of two hours, more people had attended this than had attended any queer protest demonstration in the past decade. We had 500 people come in within two hours. Yes, the usual suspects, but also kids, grandparents, and everybody, because they wanted to be part of this new place. And that was the moment I realized, you know what? People want a new world. They really, they don't believe there is no alternative, but they don't know what alternative to imagine. So here we have these right-wing nationalists selling us their crazy alternative of uh, Las Vegas on steroids. But we have a responsibility to create those alternatives, too. I, I really think it's a beautiful example. Mm -hmm. And it's it's something somebody can experience and actually play with. And it, I mean, so, something to me that sums the yeah. whole thing up is a border guard that welcomes you. Um, I've seen that shtick in a parade in San Francisco for immigrant rights where some folks actually had a border wall on wheels and they were wheeling it along the parade route and welcoming yeah. people through the door and applauding them when they came and yeah. said, hey, welcome to America. And that was part of the parade, but they had just clearly hand crafted it. It was not, no grants were spent, no grant money supported this project. It was just an amazing thing. So all of that of like, we got to reenact a vision of what we want to see. And by the way, this can even happen in dangerous conflict. So obviously in Macedonia, it wasn't, it's not safe, uh, wasn't safe for uh, queers or Roma. We just had a thing in Northern California. I just helped uh, some friends uh, from a distance because of the uh, you know, quarantine, but they were having a problem in Chico, California. Uh, some very brave uh, people there were doing harm reduction, needle exchange for people. Now we know, if you want to talk about practical reality, needle exchange is good. It doesn't actually matter if you're right wing or left wing. It reduces all kinds of harm and it helps people recover. And if you don't like hard drugs, it actually helps people get off of hard drugs in the long run. Like it's just good all around and also just decent and humane. And that's what one should do. So these folks were doing permitted harm reduction and very right wing and hateful people would physically attack them, scream at them, threaten them with tasers and just be fascist and horrible because of who's the boss of the country now 
people feel entitled to do this kind of thing. So that's a nightmare. And we just kind of brainstormed, what are we going to do? They want some creative activism to support this. And of course, over Zoom and luckily having done some workshops for these folks in person months ago, uh, all of a sudden, the next time these horrible people came to torment these very devastated people just trying to get some services, a bunch of clowns showed up. This was just last when that's last Sunday. This just happened. And the clowns got in the way, but because they're playing hopscotch. And it's like, oh, excuse me. And they're just playing hopscotch in the way. And one of these guys, this big guy, is looking down on this smaller woman. And he's like, if you touch me, I'm going to send you to heaven. You know, like a really sick fascist. And she's just, oh, yeah. Oh, and, and people carrying guns, you know, and, uh, and things like that. And, um, uh, and she's just smiling and singing him happy birthday. And most importantly, to your point uh, about the Dadaists, Neo-Dadaism, the refusal of a certain logic, they refused to respond to anything these people said. They only would say things like, hi, hi, how are you? Thank you. Happy birthday. No matter what the actual text was being spoken to them, because it's a fascist text that I'm not going to engage with. Like, you're going to threaten my life. I'm going to wish you a happy birthday. And is that Dada? It sure is Dada. It's many good things. (laughs) It's punk. It's uh, Monty Python. It's a lot of things where it's like, I see your oppressive logic structure and I'm not entering into it. I'm refusing it. And then I'm also offering something wonderful, if you see what I mean. Uh, I'm offering a world in which actually a bunch of clowns show up and break it up a little bit. And they did because they were coming outside of that frame of the, you know, you can totally understand, as you were saying, uh, for the folks in Macedonia, hey, I'm going to kick you back. Sure, I understand. Would never. I'm not going to. It's not my place to tell you not to. But with the harm reduction, the, what the way these people are acting is so horrible. You want to fight back? Maybe you have not for me to say. But what about let's try this nonsense, but a nonsense with a different sense. It's nonsense because it has its own new sense that's coming into formation. It hasn't ossified or solidified yet. It will, maybe, maybe not. And maybe it'll be in a museum later. Oh, well. But for now, it is a radical nonsense that uh, breaks up the logic of there is no alternative and of of authoritarianism, perhaps. (laughs) And and it's just thinking about that sort of exactly that moment of confrontation. I'm not going to play into your logic. And so one of my favorite moments of the Gospels um, we're going way back now, um, is the story of Jesus and his confrontation with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were like the, there is no alternative of the established church at that time. <laughs> and Jesus as a radical Jew is a real threat to them. Um, and so they want to bring him down. And so they try to trick him. And they say, well, Jesus is out there teaching one day, hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes to the Romans? Now, this is a trick question. Mm-hmm. Because basically, if Jesus says, um, no, we should not pay any taxes to the Romans, he'll be immediately arrested and killed um, for fomenting insurrection against the Roman Empire. If he says, yes, we should pay taxes to the Romans, he's lost all credibility as a radical Jew. Um, and so he does this little trick and he says, Look in your pocket. I guess they didn't have pockets then, but look in your whatever they had. Take out a coin. Whose your face belt is pouch. On, your belt pouch. Whose face is on that coin? And they say it is Caesar's. And then he pronounces, 
Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and give unto God what is God's. Now, nobody knows what that means. I mean, that's the beauty of Jesus. Nobody knows what he's talking about most of the time. Um, and so you kind of have to imagine what he's talking about, and that stimulates the imagination and so on and so forth. Um, but a radical interpretation of what Jesus is saying at that moment is he's saying that as long as as the conversation is about, do we pay taxes to the Romans or do we not pay taxes to the Romans? It's all about the Romans. Mm -hmm. Everything circulates around the Romans. Mm -hmm. We have to reframe it. We have to talk about the kingdom of God. And for the kingdom of God, for him, was a radical world of egalitarianism and love, right? Mm -hmm. And so he's like, I'm not going to play your game. I'm going to conjure up a new world. And then he does this in places like sitting down with sex workers and having dinner. Right. This is the world I want to bring into being, right. where you bring in people who are sick, you bring in sex workers, you bring in even the tax collectors themselves, and you sit down for dinner. That's the sort of world, through performance, right. he was saying was going to be the world of heaven. So this is like an old, old, wonderful sort yeah. of trope that people have been playing with. Moses did it when he imagined what the promised land was going to be. Very interestingly, Moses never gets to the promised land right. on purpose. Right. Um, <laughs> he gets to see. He gets up onto this mountain. Is I can kind of see boom. it on the horizon. Utopia is on the horizon. I ain't getting right. there. Uh -huh. Exactly. Uh huh. Exactly. Right. I uh, very powerful stuff. Very powerful stuff because we are often in that bind or even placed in what's called a double bind where you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And it's one thing that authoritarians are good at doing because they have a lot of physical power in the world is to say, why are you hitting yourself and like hitting you with your, you know, <laughs> equivalent or if you do A or B, you're in trouble or or you're enslaved to me because you're being over obedient, you know. And so there's this way to say, how do we dance through that trap I don't want to step in the trap. I do have to go forward. I can't go backwards right now. How do I dance around or through this trap and not get caught? And these are traps of f bad faith logic or mm -hmm. tricks of hegemonic domination, as you said. Enter into the maze of my idea system because I know you won't get out. And you say, hmm, what if I dig a tunnel underneath it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What if I just refuse your sense? Yes. It's a, it's a different sense ability. What I would like to operate by. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Ranciere. And um, yeah. but I think this is part of our our challenge now, right? Because we are in, in a moment of mass protest. On the, we're recording this on June third. We'll see when I get it out there in the world. But uh, as you know, there's the biggest wave of of uh, civil unrest and protest since 1968 um, in the United States. And uh, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of reaction. Uh, but perhaps there is a bit of hope because it is many, many people saying in many different ways, uh, including very creative and powerful nonviolent ways, um, that this moment is unacceptable and it needs to change. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. That this, yeah, this is bad nonsense. This is bad nonsense. I don't like your nonsense. That's right. This is unacceptable. Let's bring some good nonsense in there. Uh, Steve Duncan, always amazing to talk to you. Uh, uh, my understanding is that you've brought a creative contribution to the plague, as we always ask folks to do. Um, tell us what it is, and then we'll take a break and, and hear it. But what is what is this text? Sure. Well, I've actually brought two today. Great. One that I, I brought with me, and two that I was inspired by our conversation. Nice. And they're they're both poems. Um, and the first poem is from Thomas More's Utopia in the original utopian language, uh -huh. which, of course, 
is nonsense and completely fabricated. Um, but the second is a contemporary poem, a more contemporary poem by the late and recently departed great um, Uruguayan poet Eduardo Galeano, uh, which really taps in um, and resonates with a lot of the words we've been using because we know the poem well. How wonderful. We'll take a break and come back and hear this. You, 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 you've got the play. When Thomas More published his Utopia in 1516, um, the original editions had a lot of stuff around it. It had letters, it had observations, it had poems, it had maps, it had um, a utopian alphabet all served to both give a certain sort of veracity to like, this is a real place, but also was a way of Moore and his erudite buddies at poking fun of this notion of uh, that this place doesn't really exist. It is, after all, no place. So one of the things that was produced was, and I wish this wasn't just a podcast because it's actually, it's a wonderful illustration of the of the of the the words themselves in utopian but it is a utopian it's four verses in the utopian tongue there's this thing about trekkies who learn klingon okay <laughs> and then there's like you know uh, folks who and all respect right and then there's folks who get into tolkien because there's actually dwarvish and elvish runes and language etc and that's also great what i find fascinating about utopia is that this is a political action that's creatively engaging and fun Yes. So grateful exactly. that you're sharing it with us. And, and we've lost all the sense of humor of mm. Thomas More. Um, he was mm. he turned out to be a humorless guy who persecuted people and um, burned them at the stake and then himself was beheaded. But at this point, he had a better sense but that of was humor. But that was his later work. That was his later work. At this time, he's t- t- quite witty. So in any case, I will, I will read this to you and then I'll read the translation. Okay. Wonderful. It goes something like this. A meter of four verses in the utopian tongue, briefly touching as well the strange beginning as also the happy and wealthy continuance of the same commonwealth. Utopus habocus po la chama bota haman bargo hagmonglumia bachan soma jimo sofan agrama dino sofan la brabaca. Which verses, the translator, according to his simple knowledge and mean understanding of the utopian tongue, has thus rudely Englished. My king and conqueror, Utopus by name, a prince of much renown and immortal fame, has made me an isle that once no island was, full fraught with worldly wealth and pleasure and solace. I, one of all other without philosophy, have shaped for many a philosophical city. In mine I have nothing dangerous to impart, so better to receive I am ready with all my heart. Um, which, you know, there, there's a play there about it's a philosophical city, it's not a real city. But what you'll notice I stumbled on a couple of words. Mm-hmm. 
um, partly because I don't know Utopian. But I had a friend of mine. Who, <laughs> On your SATs in the Utopian part, how did you do? Yeah. I didn't do so well. <laughs> um, and Utopian is actually, uh, it's a mashup of Latin and Greek. Uh-huh. Um, and so I asked a friend, because I couldn't make any sense of this, right? I asked a friend um, who is a classical scholar to read it. And he got to the places where I messed up and he started laughing. And I said, well, what's so funny? He goes, you can't pronounce these. <laughs> that there's purposefully unpronounceable words. Right. So you know, it's weird. sort of like Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you, know, right. It's, you can't say the name of God in the right. same sort of thing. There's certain things which are absolutely impossible. Oh, and so, the, so the, you know, an erudite person who understood Greek and Latin would have gotten to that place and been, ha, 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 ha. Steve <laughs> tried to pronounce that. You can't pronounce that. <laughs> but I love that because it's both funny to an erudite audience, a very sure. small erudite audience, but also it gets at this notion that impossibility is built into the system. Right, right. Um, and now to the power of the impossible, I'd like to read my second poem. It's just a fragment of a, of a poem, actually, um, mm-hmm. about utopia. And... Um, It's by the late Uruguayan poet Eduardo Galeano, and it goes something like this. Utopia is on the horizon. I go two steps. She moves two steps away. I walk ten steps, and the horizon runs ten steps ahead. No matter how much I walk, I'll never reach her. What good is utopia? That's what. It's good for walking. Hmm. Amen. 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 Amen, brother. <laughs> um, and that really gets at what utopia is about. It's not a place to live, as you pointed out. It's not a destination. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a journey. It's no yes. place you will ever find. It's a place you walk to. Yes. And it's really the walking to and the constant imagining that will keep us out of the bad nonsense. Mm-hmm. Make America great again is a nonsense which has a fixed place. We are going to make America great again, and it looks like this. looks very white. Um, Versus what Thomas More's utopia is about, which is it is what we imagine it to be. It's no place that's fixed at some point, mythic 1950s America or the mythic founding fathers interpretation of the Constitution. It is alive and changing and utopia is what we imagine it to be. And therefore, it's limitless and always changing. And perhaps we have a guiding direction in terms of loving kindness decency, you know, uh, empathy, et cetera, et cetera. There can be some guiding overall principles. It's not wandering in the desert for, it's not <laughs> for 40 years, just to go back to that. Uh, I mean, if only it's they had a GPS. the promised land. <laughs> right. If only Moses had a GPS. But the point is we don't have a GPS for this, for the right. ideological journey. Right. Um, and we don't want to fall into every pit that an authoritarian uh, digs for us. Right. But it is important for people like, you know, who are creative and people who with imaginations. Um, it's our responsibility to conjure up those visions yes. Um, yes. in order to give people a taste that there may be an alternative. A sense that there may be an alternative, a smell that there may be an alternative. Mm. A tower that is never built, but is kind of an amazing idea, for example. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, Steve. As always, so great to talk to you. I hope I'll see you in person sometime before the uh, apocalypse. And uh, (laughs) Are we living in the apocalypse, man? I don't know. I thought it would be more... uh, 
I don't know, more fabulous than this in you some know, way. Who, who thought the apocalypse would just be about running out of toilet paper? <laughs> just, and riots. Yes, and riots. Why can't there be something more wonderful about it? Well, that's our job. Yes. That's our job. Indeed, indeed. Thank you so much, Steve Duncombe of the Center for Artistic Activism. Um, we will see you again a few steps closer and then not closer again to Utopia. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Steve. You've been listening to The Plague Podcast. I'm your host, L.M. Bogad. And for more information on my books and performance work, you can go to lmbogad.com. Sound design and music by Jason Montero and my other friend named Jay.